Thank you. <laughs> I wanted to begin with this poem that many of you know already. It's a part of the poem by Galway Kinnell, an Irish, Irish poet, I think. And it's called Relearning Loveliness. The bud stands for all things, even those things that don't flower. For everything flowers from within of self-blessing, though sometimes it is necessary to reteach a thing its loveliness, to put a hand on the brow of the flower and retell it in words and in touch. It is lovely until it flowers again from within of self-blessing. That's what we're doing here, is learning to retell ourselves, because in some way we know already our loveliness, so that we can open and flower in self-blessing. I thought I had brought this quote from Martin Luther King that says basically what the Buddha says, which is that, um, that hate is never the deepest expression of our humanity, that just love is. And in writing this talk, I thought about one of the monks or some of the monks who managed to escape from Chinese prisoner of, um, of prisoner camps in Tibet and find their way to the Dalai Lama in Dharamsala. And the Dalai Lama sort of checking in. I can't remember where this was written. And, and saying, you know, how are you? And one monk in particular saying, you know, I was just really scared for one thing, and that was losing my compassion to my torturers, because then I would have lost my humanity. And that understanding, that understanding of staying connected to the qualities of our loveliness is really at the heart of our own understanding. And that's what some of us talked about in our small group, because otherwise we wouldn't be here. And maybe we see it in smaller ways. You know, maybe if you are an animal person and you're walking along the street and you see a dog, your response, I've seen this with dog people, they immediately go over to the dog and pet the dog and talk to the dog owner about what kind of dog it is. and. You know, and the words aren't so important. It's just this movement of the heart in response to seeing, you know, a dog on the road. Or it might be, if you're not a dog person, you make the effort when you um, check out at the place where you shop. I um, shop um, at Whole Foods some of the time, and there's a cashier that's been there for years and years, and they don't get paid that much, you know, and so I always see that response inside of me to say something like, hi, how's it going, you know, are you, you know, are you near the end of your shift, or, you know, just something to say, hi, I see you. Or it might be that you far surpass my own capacity of generosity in driving. And that, you know, when someone's waiting to come out into the road and there's a lot of traffic, you will actually stop and let someone in. And um, that, that sort of genuine generosity of spirit that each one of us has in particular ways. And the... Um, you know, one other example I know often in our friendships is that, you know, someone will call and it's late and you're tired and or I'll call my ex, for example, and she loves, um, what's it called, the one where everyone sings? Huh? American Idol. American Idol. <laughs> she, she loves American Idol, you know, and I'll call her and I'll watch that kind of hesitation you know, because I don't know, watch it, and I don't know when it's on. And, she'll, and she'll, she'll continue to talk to me, 
you know, rather than saying, listen, can I talk to you later? I'm watching American Idol. You know, and I, <laughs> and I know part of her really wants to say that, and I can feel her generosity of spirit because she doesn't, at least some of the time, and she talks. And we all, just ordinary things, what's important about naming them is that often these beautiful energies are hidden to us. And we know that they come through us, but we don't see ourselves as lovely. And the Buddha says, this is our basic quality, inheritance, characteristic as a human being. It is what's true and real about us. It is not temporary, like hatred and delusion and greed and craving, that those are actually temporary. What is fundamental about our nature is our generosity and love and kindness. And we actually do see it shine through over and over again. So there's this actually lovely other poem that um, I um, um, that I wanted to read from um, Mary Oliver. I have been in love more times than once, thank the Lord. Sometimes it was lasting, whether active or not. Sometimes it was all but ephemeral, maybe only an afternoon, but not less real for that. They stay in my mind, these beautiful people, or anyway, beautiful to me, of which there are so many, you and you and you whom I had the fortune to meet or maybe missed. Love, love, love. It was the core of my life, from which, of course, comes the word for the heart. And, oh, have I mentioned that some of them were men and some were women, and some, now carry my revelation with you, were trees or places or music flying above the names of their makers or clouds, or the sun, which was the first and the best, the most loyal for certain, who looks so faithfully into my eyes every morning. So I imagine such love of the world, its fervency, its shining, its innocence and hunger to give of itself. I imagine this is how it began, life. So, um, so, so this is our fundamental capacity. And then, actually, I'm just going to take a moment because. So then at the same time that this is true, this openness and love that is at the heart is also how incredibly sensitive and vulnerable we are. I was just thinking about it, you know, today that um, for me it was just a tiny chip, so tiny you could only see it under a microscope of my disc that had herniated, that floated up my spine and lodged against the nerve column, this tiny piece of herniated disc. And yet, that tiny piece damaged the nerve because the nerve is so sensitive. And it's like, wow, we are so sensitive. Or if we just get a bit too much sun, we burn or put our finger in the flame or just, you know, roll our ankle and a ligament is torn. We're incredibly sensitive and vulnerable. And often we don't acknowledge that as well. And in that combination of fundamentally loving and open and vulnerable, we come into an imperfect world, a deeply imperfect world. We come into families where our parents didn't have often the kind of practices that would enable them to hold the whole of ourselves, to witness ourselves, to respect ourselves. And so each one of us, I know in one way or another, has survived our family hurt. 
Sometimes that hurt was really profound. And sometimes a little less profound, but actually perhaps no less painful. And then on top of that, we spent 16 years in school, you know, 15 years in school, however many years of schooling you have had, 10 years of school, more maybe, where often we were not seen at all for who we were. We were not nurtured for our own particular individual strengths, but forced, at least I was, into the conformity of a school uniform and walking in lines in my high school in London and, you know, and really not seen and witnessed at all. Actually, it was horrible. Luckily, I got expelled. (laughs) (laughs) You know, so, so, you know, and then just to acknowledge this culture, I don't know if any of you have seen the movie brothers about um, uh, a young man who goes to war and comes back with, um, you know, post-traumatic stress syndrome? Well, of course, because what kind of training does it take and what does it take to kill other human beings? We have to be so shut down. And yet, in a way, this culture venerates that kind of of masculinity and that way of living as a man, to be that shut down that you can take out a gun and kill another human being. You know, or a culture where there's an oil spill or where there's, you know, the financial meltdown and no one who's responsible is willing to say, I'm really sorry, that was a terrible mistake. I want to make reparation. Think of the amount of wounding in war and in those things and how shut down you have to be to continue to do the kinds of things you're doing without saying that, without saying, I am really sorry. How can I help repair this? So I'm just saying that because it's deep and often we don't acknowledge the impact of what it means to be both open and living in a world that is often blind and ignorant. In this situation, old defense mechanisms come into play that we have used because we didn't have anything else when we were younger, and also as adults when we didn't have any other resource. And those old mechanisms are judgment, shame, and blame, Um, or um, self-hatred, that kind of turning and criticizing or hating or um, having aversion towards ourselves or also towards others. And if you look at it, like if you really look at it, you'll see that really it is a way that we are trying to survive in this world without having resources, without necessarily being in a safe place. And so the judgment and the shame and the blame are this kind of way of living with the hurt that we are carrying and the pain that we are carrying because they were the only ways we our minds and our bodies and our psychology could access. The trouble is that we haven't understood it in those ways. We have taken them to be true, and they are not. So this is what the... This is, um, this is Bhikkhu Bodhi, who's one of the most foremost... Um, 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 interpreters of the Pali Canon. He's a wonderful. He's a wonderful monk. I have an incredible regard for him. Not only is he extremely venerated and knowledgeable, but he also supports um, full ordination for um, nuns, which is not that usual in the Theravadan tradition. So he's extraordinary. He's in his eighties, and um, my 
So um, this is what he, this is what he says here. Um, oh, oh, wait! I'm jumping a step. So, so when we when we acknowledge both these realities, we have this incredible possibility to understand where we are and to begin to build a container that allows us to hold the pain that we are living with so that we create the conditions for the, the, um, the old defense mechanisms to begin to dissolve. That's what the Eightfold Path is. That is actually what the Four Noble Truths are. The Buddha is, the Buddha is saying this in a different way. It's the same content, which is that there is pain and suffering. You know, that we do have old defense mechanisms which don't hold us, which is craving and hatred and delusion. You know, that it is possible for the mind and heart to liberate itself so that we are an expression of love. And then there is this practice, and the practice of building the foundation in which to experience our pain is the practice of training the mind to be present. Why? Why is it that mindfulness as a factor is so profoundly transformative? It is. You know, it's just like, why does water really nourish thirst? Well, it does. You know, it is one of its characteristics, and it is exquisite because it does two things. In every moment of being mindful, that mindfulness is actually a connection. It is a kind of intimate connection that we talked about in the question and answer period of saying, sort of, I'm here for you. It is the energetic expression of the heart in presence that touches and meets things just as they are. And one of, one of my favorite stories that I go back to over and over again is the story of Kalu Rinpoche being taken in Boston to the aquarium with a, a student. And because he couldn't re- read the signs, he would go from the one glass... Um, container or whatever it is where you see the fish to the other tapping and and it actually says do not tap and so the student said Rinpoche what are you doing and he said I'm tapping the fish that they might um, turn towards me in attention so I can bless them that's that awakening that self-blessing That's really what we're learning to do. We're calling on our capacity, turning our attention, tapping on our being, awakening ourselves so that we can be present and so that we can bless ourselves. And the challenge, and the challenge is that this turning towards and blessing isn't just about blessing the pleasant experiences. You know, so when we have a birthday party, you know, and we sort of encapsulate a pleasant experience and we celebrate someone, and it's lovely to do that. It's really lovely. It's easy in some way, and not so easy when we turn towards ourselves in the places where we are caught in our old defense mechanisms, when we are shut down, when we can't find a way into our mind, when we are impatient, when we are hurting and when we are in pain, when we are contracted and frustrated. And this capacity of mindfulness is so brilliant and so beautiful Because as we practice it, it has the capacity to turn, it's so beautiful, towards these parts of ourselves as well and to bless them. And so liberation is not just about having pleasant experiences. 
it is not, as Jean was talking about, just being in samadhi. It is this capacity to turn towards these places and bless ourselves. And that's what we're learning. So mindfulness is like... I was just talking to Martin, who's um, leading the, uh, the, helping to lead the retreat down there, and he's building a house. And um, we're talking about it. Mindfulness is like building a house. It's like putting the foundation down and putting those huge, not even two-by-fours, but eight-by-eights, whatever it is, as the structures, so that we can live in the house so that our whole being can unfold within that container. And that's what mindfulness does. And so that's why the Buddha said that if we were to practice mindfulness, and he's unequivocal, if we, if we are to practice mindfulness, it will eventually create the conditions for our freedom from suffering. He's unequivocal about that. It will bring about our healing. And for many of us, it's a kind of, you know, developmental and slow path. Jean and I and some of you have been sitting for a long time, and we can say the both and. We can say, yes, my house partly has been built, and I see how it's holding me. I see how it's holding me. And that's incredible. And I also see where I lose it. So I continue on this path, strengthening my foundation, strengthening my house, that I might begin to be able to open to the pain that is inside me. Because when we do, when we find those moments where the mind is stable and, and present enough to really allow and open to the pain that we um, are feeling inside of ourselves. It is amazing. It's like going onto an elevator and dropping down to ground floor. It's like we drop into our hearts. And for periods of time, we feel profoundly connected. It could just be for 25 seconds or two minutes or five minutes or several hours or several days that we are connected in that kind of molecular way. We are integrated into our bodies and into our hearts and into our beings. That's the process. And it's uh, Michelle McDonald, a, a teacher that we both share, also says it's like an onion. You know, you, you work at mindfulness. It's like peeling one layer, and then you have this opening, and that opening brings the next layer up. So it's kind of never-ending. The difference is that the house becomes stronger and stronger as each layer is peeled open. So we are practicing, so we're practicing mindfulness and loving-kindness. We are calling forth this capacity, this Buddha nature of ourselves to build our house and to practice. In this building then, the Buddha says to us, now that you're on the path, now that you're getting a sense of where the healing is, here is one of the most important and critical understandings. See what is skillful. See what is healing and build it. Abandon what is unskillful and what isn't healing. And this is how Bhikkhu Bodhi talks about that. <clears throat> The Buddha teaches that our minds incline to what we habitually reflect on. If we pers persistently think thoughts driven by lust, ill will, and harmfulness, these traits will become habitual. If we recognize the danger in these thoughts and the benefit in their opposites, we will incline instead towards non-attachment, loving-kindness, and compassion, which will eventually become habitual. The discourse on two kinds of thoughts in the middle-length sayings, number 19, offers a splendid example of this process as the Buddha himself applied it during the period prior to his enlightenment. While meditating in solitude, he tells us he realized that his thoughts could be divided into two categories, 
the unwholesome and the wholesome. Whenever a thought of craving, desire, ill will, judgment, shame, blame, cruelty arose, he would consider this thought is harmful. It obstructs wisdom, brings trouble, and leads away from freedom. In this way, he renounced these thoughts. And whenever a thought of renunciation, kindness, and compassion arose, he reflected, this thought is beneficial. It brings no trouble but promotes wisdom and leads to nirvana. In this way, he cultivated these thoughts. So, um, that's kind of, you know, the Buddha's way of saying the old ways we did things served us but don't serve us anymore. No reason to judge our judgment, but rather to see that those old defense mechanisms aren't serving us. And in seeing it, and we can only see it with mindfulness, letting them go. So this morning in the question and answer period, we, you know, I quoted Upandita when he said, no thought is worth thinking. He said that because he knows that most of our thinking is habitual. That, you know, how many original thoughts have you had today? Can you count them? <laughs> One, maybe, if we're lucky, you know, out of all the hundreds and hundreds of thoughts. So it's like, looking at our thoughts through our mindfulness and seeing that they aren't skillful, that they aren't contributing to building this house that holds our lives and so letting them go. And actively cultivating the beautiful qualities of mind, actively cultivating appreciation and acknowledgement of our efforts, appreciating the moments of mindfulness, appreciating our patience and our kindness and our generosity in sitting here through the day. Because every time we appreciate and acknowledge any of the skillful qualities, any of our efforts, we are building that house. So then, um, in this process... We, in this process, we um, find ourselves to be students of life and that we find ourselves, even with this understanding, making the same mistake over and over and over again. And so forgiveness is this wonderful quality that allows ourselves to unburden the, the standard of perfectionism that each of us have. It is amazing, isn't it, how perfectionist we are in some ways, how much we demand of ourselves. I mean, if, you know, if a, our boss or supervisor asked of us what we ask of ourselves, you know, we could take them to court for bad working conditions. <laughs> so um, I wanted to... Um, I wanted to share how profound the practice of forgiveness has been for me because it has been this pathway that has allowed me to make mistakes over and over again. And, you know, um, when, when, I, when I had surgery on my back to get this piece out, this piece of disc out, um, they had given me a lot of anesthetic. They had given me a lot, a lot, a lot of anesthetic. And then I've, I was on opiates and all kinds of things afterwards. And, and I was like, I was like, a to- I, I was like beside myself. I was in this, this hell realm of believing that I wasn't going to be able to walk again, just not walk again at all, that I was going to be in excruciating pain the whole time my mind fixated on it, and I could not cut it. It was amazing. You know, and I, and I was, it was like I judged myself so much for not being able to cut that place. And it was like, it just excruciating. 
I would call my sister up on the phone, you know, like late at night, and I would sob and say, I'm not going to be able to walk again, and I'm in all this pain, I'm going to be in pain the whole of my life, you know. And she would sort of be so patient and say, you know, it might not be that way, Arena. And I said, no, no, you don't know that. <laughs> you know, and... It took, it took a while to actually find my balance, and I did it by cutting all the pain medication because I couldn't find my spaciousness of mind and be on pain medication at, at the same time. And it was, just, it was amazing, you know, especially with that sort of subtle identity creeping in that I'm also a teacher. You know, like here I am not only an old practitioner, but a teacher, and here I am sobbing about never being able to walk again because I'm totally identified and caught in my fear and projecting it onto the future. And it's just so liberating to find that place that is forgiving, you know, and to say, I forgive myself. I am a student and I'm still learning. And I forgive myself. And I am imperfect and I make mistakes over and over again. And I forgive myself. And it is this capacity that we have to go through experiences to fall down to fall down and to fall down and to allow ourselves to be students that actually brings love and the conditions for mindfulness back again. It is, it is one of the most beautiful qualities. I wanted to read a story um, that Bishop Tutu uh, shares in a forum um, in America. He says, I'm your guest. Uh-uh. I want to give you an example, a very deeply moving example. A young woman came from, I think, from Stanford University. She was a Fulbright scholar. She went to South Africa. Amy Beale is her name. One day she decided she was going to give a lift to an African colleague and drove to the township. This is like in, um, this was in, um, in, in South Africa, even though it's integrated, it's still, it's still pretty divided up, and the townships are still where the, a, a lot of Africans live, and the poverty is very, very intense there. So she got to this township just outside Cape Town, which is actually where my mom lives, and a mob of youngsters who belonged to one particular political group began chanting their slogan, one settler, one bullet, one settler, one bullet, settler being white person. And since all the settlers were white, meant one bullet for every settler they saw. And Amy Beale was a settler. And Amy Beale had gone to South Africa because she had been committed to ending apartheid. They stopped people who were the leaders of this... Wait. They stopped her car. She jumped out and tried to run. She fell and they killed her. They stoned her to death. The young people who were the leaders of this mob were arrested and sentenced to fairly long terms. And then the Truth and Reconciliation Commission came along. And so they applied for amnesty. Her parents, Linda and Peter Beale, fly all the way from California to South Africa. Relatives and parents had the right to oppose the granting of amnesty if they wanted. Peter and Linda Beale attended the amnesty hearing, and Peter Beale got up and said, Amy would have wanted us to be here. Amy would have wanted us to support the granting of amnesty to these young men. And so we, her parents, have come to say, we want amnesty to be granted to these young men who killed our daughter. That would have been an almost unheard of kind of generosity. They established the Amy Beale Foundation, which aims to train young people in the township in which their daughter was killed to salvage them from the violence and the crime to which they would almost certainly succumb. The Beals are white Americans. One of the young men who killed, or who was involved in the killing of their daughter, works for the Amy Beale Foundation. 
So I'm not sure, yes, maybe you say this is an exception, but I would want to suggest myself that you have in this country not given enough play to one of your most incredible characteristics. And I'm not saying this to butter you up. You are some of the most generous people I have come across. And I have been around the world a little bit and have met people. In terms of philanthropy, you are top of the league. And that's, I want to say, why don't you export this rather than your bombs? That, that capacity is the example of two people who have built their own house so that they were able to feel the pain of what had happened and in that capacity to actually extend love. There are places where we can't do that because we are in a developmental process. And so for those of us who've experienced extreme violence, it might be that we are nowhere near forgiveness because forgiveness only comes from that capacity to open and to experience the grief and the sadness of the loss or of the trauma that we've experienced. So again, like just going back to my body and when the doctor said, well, you're not going to get any better, this is it, you know, you you won't be able to run again or do any sports or you're going to be in pain again for the rest of your life. It was amazing because I watched my mind sort of contract and go into shock. And there, and there really wasn't, it was like it, there wasn't anything that I could do. Like, you know, like say meta for myself, like may, you know, may you, may you come to ease with your diagnosis. What I saw is that it is a journey of actually opening to the pain. It's an journey of opening to the grief and loss. And as I open more and more lying here and opening, in that opening comes this integration and in the integration comes the love. So forgiveness is not like a top-down affair, but it is this wonderful capacity that allows us to be where we are without judgment, shame, and blame, to say, I understand that I'm shut down right now and it's okay because I'm on a journey and I also understand where my journey is directed. It is directed to both the building up of the beautiful qualities and the opening to the pain because it's both those things that need to happen in order for the heart to fully open and to release. So, in saying this, then, I want to invite you all to be in charge of your own retreat, because that, that, that tightrope we walk between building by being mindful and kind and, um, and, uh, creating the space to feel the pain and the grief that is under our judgment and our negative thinking. It's, it's very, very subtle. And so both Jean and I want to support you to find the ways that most support you in building that balance. Now, we have said, for example, or I think it was in your registration not to read. If you find your mind is becoming very contracted, then take a, take a bit of time, take a short period of time and read to give your mind a rest. Or I've said to some of you, if you feel like there is just no way you can sit in this room and follow your breath, sing some songs. It is a totally kosher practice to sing some songs and just to rest the mind in singing songs. And it doesn't matter what songs. I, I mentioned to some of you that I, I sing um, um, Jack and Jill went up the hill and Humpty Dumpty fell down and broke his crown. 
and because I don't remember a lot of songs of words, but I do remember those. And I have sat through 45-minute periods singing, taking a break, just understanding, oh, I'm sitting and giving my mind a rest, kind of extricating itself from that deep contraction and identification with what's happening. And then I might even just lift my hand up and sort of say, I know I'm lifting my hand and I know I'm bringing it down. I feel my hand on my knees. May, may my heart be open. And then I'll see this contraction coming in. Humpty Dumpty, Jack and Joel went up the hill. You know, and then I'm like teasing my mind away. So I'm saying this to really support each of us to feel empowered to play, to find the ways of both opening and building, opening and building. Let's see, I could read you another story, but let me check in with you because it's 45 minutes. Should I read you a story or should we, should you, feeling invigorated in, in to do walking meditation now? <laughs> <laughs> what a choice. I, I, this used to be one of my, I mean, is one of my favorite stories and um, I read it, I used to read it a lot and I just came across it. So I, I love to read it. When I left New York Harbor for Peru, I instinctively felt I was making a journey that would shape my life. It was 1951. I was robust and eager. I wasn't even sure what my real mission would be. At that point, there was just an empty lot. It was... 13,500 feet high, very cold and demanding. As a Mary Knoll sister, and I don't know if any of you know them, I traveled on a human rights commission to Argentina and Uruguay to talk to people who'd been tortured with Mary Knoll sisters, and they're amazing. I was there to teach school. After a while, I became a principal. I guess you could say I was a figure just by being in that role. Then the illness happened, quite suddenly up there. The doctors said it was rheumatoid arthritis. They said it was ultimately a crippling disease. They said there was nothing really to do about it. I went to see other doctors elsewhere, like in Panama, because I wanted to stay in South America. I wouldn't accept what they were telling me, what I was going to have to face, but it gradually became clear I should come back to the States. I got good care. However, the doctors said that gold injections would be the only help, but it would prevent me from going back to Peru. I didn't want them. I was going back. I was fighting it, fighting it all. The illness, my own reactions, self-pity, anger, discouragement, doubt. I would not give in. But every day it seemed I was losing. Finally, I felt I had to quit imposing my own will. That was the big step. I went to the doctors and they said they could give me this medicine and after a few months they'd see if I could get into a maintenance program and go back to Peru. After all my anger and resistance, there seemed to be some kind of chance. But chance for what? I had surgery at the Mayo Clinic and I did a great deal of reflecting and praying in their chapel. There was a beautiful wooden statue of Christ there with outstretched hands. I think that's why it had been chosen, to inspire the hands of surgeons and nurses. As it happens, I was there to have my own hands operated on. I remember thinking that even though my hands were going to be broken and crooked, they would still be sacred to me. I had used them to bring something to somebody. I didn't know what. My hands could be compassionate hands as much as the hands of doctors and nurses. So I sought to be able to enter into the world of the sick and to live with the misery of suffering. I saw that I had to enter into my own experience of pain and to face up to it. 
and to allow myself to be changed by it. Without that, nothing could be done. I saw that healing comes with owning our wounds as the first step in healing. I returned to Peru at a lower altitude. Almost everything had changed, especially my attitude towards the people I was working with. I could feel their terrible poverty and pain in a new way. In fact, it seemed as if I was seeing it for the first time. How often I'd rushed around trying to solve people's problems without really seeing them. And I just have to take an interruption here because I do this myself. But often when I see my friends and other people and they say, how are you? And I say, oh, I'm working with a significant amount of pain. They say, well, have you tried this? Well, have you tried this? No, this doctor's really great. You have to see this doctor or this chiropractor. And it's like you're overwhelmed with fix-it strategies. So how I'd rushed around trying to solve people's problems without really seeing them, the pain in their faces, the insecurity, the nervous hands, all expressions of the hurt inside. It was only when suffering had touched me that I began to feel their condition. The affirmation I got from them was so important. You're the same person you were before, and even if you can't teach or do anything, we'd like you to stay, they said. Just to see me get up and try to do something seemed to mean a great deal to them. We were meeting on a level where we all suffer. That became our ground. And so my ministry changed. It became the ministry of walking together. Some of us with physical disabilities joined together to share our experiences. We were just being together, trying to understand what was possible for us, share what we could, examples of creativity, our pain and weakness and deformity proved to be teachers of a great mystery, a small introduction into the kind of dying from which a new spirit is born. We found we had become more sensitive to others, more touched, more able to listen, moved more by feelings than intellectual concepts. We discovered that the more we opened to the pain of others, the more we found ourselves in service. Having been brought low, she says, it was just a matter of standing humbly before others and presenting a visible sign of testimony. So we would simply walk about as best we could. Many of the Peruvians we ran into with handicaps were deeply ashamed and hid. We would come to see them and they would hide in their own homes. But as we moved about, they would gradually come forth. I think of Juan, a polio victim at just a, a page. I think of Juan, a polio victim at three, who had been hidden by his family in their small mud brick house until we discovered him at the age eight. His brother Julio took us home one day, and there was Juan, his twisted legs underneath him, scooting around the small dirt patio on a piece of rubber. His mother was suspicious and didn't want us to stay. A handicapped child meant she was being punished for something. She was ashamed. I know that we have all felt that when um, we have felt ourselves somehow disabled in some way. We returned on several occasions to visit Juan. One time we found him all alone. His family with the rest of the town had gone to a religious procession. Of course he had never seen one. So we borrowed a bicycle, put Juan on it, and joined the procession itself. It was his first time outside the house, the first time he'd looked at people from a higher level than the ground, his first procession. His parents were momentarily annoyed, but their attitude gradually changed. When we thought it was right to raise the idea, we asked at the next town meeting if we could raise money to send Juan to Lima for physical rehabilitation. Everyone liked the idea, and Juan went off. He had a long, hard struggle, with much pain and effort. But one day he returned to the village. He was using braces and a cane. 
It was hard for him, but as he began to walk down the streets to his home, people came out of their homes. They appeared from all over and they were cheering and clapping and they followed him all the way home. It was so wonderful. It was one second procession. It's difficult. I've had many ups and downs. That's the thing about a progressive crippling disease, more and more pain and disability. It keeps on pushing you, making more demands, forcing you to a greater discipline. But I have seen much service born of suffering, and I see that our little suffering is not for ourselves. It can have impact throughout the world. That's how much our lives can mean. That's how much it's possible. And I've been with people who would just cry over that message, cry and cry, and I have cried too. So let's sit for a moment. Acknowledging our capacity to reflect both our own beauty and to hold our suffering and despair. And how we are carried by the great winds of mindfulness and love. Thank you for your listening and your presence. So, thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org/slash/donate.